Good morning, everyone. And I do appreciate your continued prayers this morning. You can open your Bibles to start in Habakkuk 3. So that's probably not a book you turn to very often, so if you go to Matthew and go back about five books, you'll find it. We're going to read here in Habakkuk 3, starting at verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. About a year and a half ago, I was given a book, and I wasn't really into the author, and a quick skim of the book didn't grab me, and so it sat on my shelf, getting a little dusty. And a couple of months ago, I was praying for inspiration, and I stumbled across this book and started paging through it, and in the second chapter, there was something that grabbed me. It talked about a faith that is framed in, even though I will. And it talked about uh, the three Hebrew young men that, that refused to bow down to the image of the king. It talked about Daniel and his commitment to his God and his prayer at his window and his short-term stay in the lion pit. And it talked about Paul and Silas there in Philippi and prison in the stocks praising. And then it had this passage from Habakkuk, and I think it was from the Good News translation that they had printed there in the book. And so where in the New King James that I read from, we have though the fig tree, though the labor of the olive, though the flock. In the Good News translation, it was even though, even though, even though. And then there in Verse 18, we have, I will. And that, that grabbed me, this, this idea of even though, I will, being the, the description of my faith. And I thought of the parable of the soils and how for some the seed came, but the scorching heat withered. For some, the seed started to grow but was choked out by the oppressive weeds and plants around it. This morning, we're going to consider a passage that, to be frank, I thought I would never base a message on. 
You can turn to Psalm 23. I know it's probably not fair, but Psalm 23 always felt like the safety valve when you just weren't quite sure what to talk about. It's kind of the comfortable, familiar um, blanket you pull off the shelf and cuddle into. But this, um, that book that was given to me, it, it helped me... Uh, grasp a little more out of Psalm 23 than, than I had previously. So we're going to read here Psalm 23. This is, I was trying to think if John 3.16 or Psalm 23 would be the most well-known passage of the Bible. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure which to think. Anyway, I'm going to read it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And verse 4 here in Psalm 23 is another even though passage. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We've all been touched in some way by death death of loved ones, maybe even our own mortality casts a shadow for us sometimes. And, and that's, the, that's literal death. That's what we think of when we think of death. And I also thought about how we face the death of dreams, the death of relationships, um, maybe even just the, the death of a, of a season of our life. We, we live an existence that is marked by endings in a lot of ways. I thought about some of us were at a graduation Friday night, and Arwen and Joseph, they finished their grade school. They graduated. And right now, I don't think there's much of a feeling of death or loss for them, but there's a little bit. Both of them referenced it in the, the speeches they gave, that there was a little sense of loss for them, that they were losing as they, as they had to leave that season of life behind. There were some things that they appreciated and enjoyed that they were losing. And I thought about that as I read this passage again, that in some ways, that is another little picture of as we move forward, we, we have some sorrow as we, as we lose things, as, as things kind of maybe die to us. And it's not just then the, the not just literal death and, and the big things that cast those shadows that wear us down, that worry us, that scare us. There are some of those small losses or, or deaths all the way up to 
the, the literal physical deaths that, that shake us and, and concern us, and our own mortality and, and fears. There's, there's a lot of shadows and all of that, scary shadows. And, and so regardless of where we are in life, I think everyone can, can relate to the psalmist David as, as he writes this. This, this idea of walking through the sh- valley of the shadow of death, whether it be loss or danger, he says, I will fear no evil. I've traditionally thought of that as probably um, opposition or enemy or even Satan. I won't fear evil in that way. Looking at the Hebrew word that's used there, it's, it's a pretty broad word. Adversity, affliction, Bad, calamity, distress, harm, hurt, misery, sorrow, wrong, all of those are ways that that word evil can be translated. Even though I will. And David gives a how here. How is it that even though I walk through that valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear? How? He says, you are with me. And this morning, I hope we can really get our our heads around that. Whatever you are facing in life, God is not just going to help you. He is with you. I find when I pray, I often pray, God, help me. Or if I'm praying for someone else, I say, God, help so-and-so. And I can easily lose sight that he is with me when I wonder what's next, or if we think about the the literal uh, valley of the shadow of death, what about that person at the graveside feeling that deep sense of loss? What about the person sitting at home who has faced that loss? God isn't just for them or watching out over them. He is with them. God is with you. So when I face danger, when I face sorrow, when I face loss, I am not alone. I am not just equipped, but accompanied. That is a powerful thing to know and to hold on to. That I am not just equipped, but I am accompanied. Here we have the rod and staff. David mentions, and and we have shepherd imagery again, like he started the passage with. And the rod and staff, to me, I see that, and I think about direction and discipline and defense when when I see the rod and staff there. I've never been a shepherd in a physical, literal sense, and I pray and hope that God doesn't ask me to be. But when we, when, when we are the metaphorical sheep in this passage, that's not necessarily a compliment to us. It's not, oh, so cute and so cuddly and so fluffy. Sheep aren't the swiftest creatures. Uh, their depth perception isn't great from what I read. They are, well, they're not an apex predator. This is not about us being great and sweet or cuddly, but this is about Jesus being that loving and willing shepherd, that leader. He makes me to lie in 
and green pastures and verdant pastures would be the idea. So when I think about sheep, I might think of a picture from Scotland or Ireland and the rolling green hills dotted with all the white sheep. That's not what David got to see. We're talking Middle East, arid, scrubby. Um, it wasn't just release the sheep and they find the green. There was work for the shepherd to find the, the verdant, lush pastures for those sheep. But our shepherd will find that life-giving place, lead us there, show us that we need to lie down there. The still waters. Sheep are not an aquatic animal. So this uh, a turbulent water would not really be a safe water. So we have the shepherd leading us to peaceful water where we can find safe refreshment. We read about the restoration of the soul, guidance and the best paths. And so when we read this, it sounds like every problem in the world is, uh, is solved by following the shepherd. That we couldn't actually pull up a problem that exists in the world that wouldn't be solved by simply following this shepherd. <clears throat> a couple of sentences into the promise of this passage, and we're, we're seeing the solution to any problem we might face. Rest, food, water, restoration and healing, direction. When you get to the scary and shadowy valley of death, you don't fear, you don't sorrow. I'm here, I'm here with you. I've got a staff to guide you, a rod to correct you and protect you. And this, this promise is almost overwhelmingly good. And we get to a verse that I am sure I have said hundreds of times and had maybe never stopped and pondered. In verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. The last phrase is powerful, very understandable. I'm not just the person that has enough, but the person that has more than enough. Um, his provision isn't the type where you, you get to your destination and the gas light is on. It's you have more than enough. Let's keep going into the last verse for a moment. Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm going to follow you, is the picture I get there. He's going to follow me home from church today. He's going to follow me through this week. He's going to follow me until my birthday, until my next birthday, to the very end of my life. And not just surely goodness and mercy, that's not just good things in God's favor, but the very God of all goodness and mercy, following me all the days of my life. And after that, he says, why don't you just come with me and live in my house now? We all want to be led by a shepherd like that. Psalm 23 is a promise. And I would... I would I thought of a message JP preached quite a while ago where he talked about a package deal. Um, I wouldn't even call this promises, but it is one big promise, all-inclusive. 
This promise, though, is not just the needlepoint on the pillow at grandmother's house, or not just the wood carving on your wall, or not just a pretty photo with the verses in front of it that you can share on social media. It's not just the words that we maybe learned to quote before we could even read. We have this promise. And our options today are to respond with, no thanks, I'll lead myself. Or, well, I'm following someone else right now. Or we can say, I need what you're offering. I need you, God, to be my shepherd. I'll, I'll surrender to your shepherding, to your leading. Let's go back to verse 5. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I would have written that differently. And this is, this is the, the piece that I, I really had not pondered very deeply. If I was writing this, I would have written in, well, in verse 4, I would have written, you lead me around the valley of the shadow of death and thus spare me from sorrow, fear, and loss. And then in verse 5, I probably would have written something like, you conquer my enemies and prepare me a feast. And you prepare a table before me in your presence. We want out of the valley. We want away from the opposition. Pluck me out of my circumstances is, it's not a wrong prayer to pray, but it's a prayer I probably pray a little too much. If I stop to consider verse 5, I start to scratch my head. God is preparing this feast in the presence of my enemies. And remember verse 4, and I am with you. While you are surrounded, I'm going to sit down and have a meal with you. So I thought about trying to set up a table here for an object lesson, but you'll just have to use your your imagination with me. Envision for a moment a table right in the front of this room. Not a, a huge table. It's a table for two. Oh, this will help you. Um, take the table that Nathan brings up here for communion time and just, in your mind, move it right out there in front of the, in front of the lectern. It's a table for two. God didn't say, I'll prepare and put a user guide on it. Just read the instruction sheet that's beside, you know, between the menu and the napkins. I think about the time of this psalm and, and going back to the, the arid desert climate. And I think about what it would have been to, to put out a spread on a table with a feast and the food and the fresh water. And, and, and this is a feast prepared by God, so I don't know what all to imagine, but in my mind's eye, this table for two is, is stacked with water and juices and bread and cheeses and meat and fruit, and it's just better than any meal I've ever had. Uh, overwhelming hospitality and generosity. Even when surrounded by enemies, I'm going to lay out a feast for you. And the word table here, the Hebrew word that's translated table, has some idea of spread out. 
So this is not just a sack lunch. This is not just a little tray. This is, this is a, a feast prepared by God. So if, if you're imagining that table for two sitting there, now imagine all these seats are filled with those who wish me harm. I don't think I have any enemies in this room. I'm pretty confident of that. But for the sake of this illustration, you have this table here for two, laden down with good provisions from God. And all those people sitting here looking on wish you harm. Maybe it's not just people. Maybe it's even some things and pressures there, surrounded by enemies. And God, right in the middle of all the pressures and, 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 and the active aggression against you, he set up a feast and is sat down there at the table to share a meal with you. And this is the piece of the Christian life that is so easily lost. It's the truth of Christianity that is missing from, from other religions or religious experiences, the personal relationship between you and your God. So if you consider, Strasbourg has a population of about 7,000 people, so if you consider the 7,000 people of Strasbourg this morning, there would be very many different understandings of God. Not everyone in that 7,000 people would even know who Jesus is. They wouldn't all know what the Bible says. But every one of them walking into a room with a, a table set for two with plates and dishes full of food, they know what that is. They would understand that. That would connect with them. This is what God is desiring for you. He doesn't say, let's go grab some grapes from that dish and let's get out of here. He says, I've got a table right here. Would you like to sit down and join me? Can I pour you a cup of cool living water? We so easily miss the relationship with God and the, the intimacy with God. But at this table for two, it is possible someone else will get to your table. So this book, oh, I remembered to bring a copy. The title is Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table. It's written by Louis Giglio. And he tells a story about, well, he says it's in another country, and then later he says, well, it might have been, it might not have been. I don't want anybody to get embarrassed by the story. So some details are accurate, and, or some details are correct, and others are changed for the sake of not embarrassing anybody. And so I don't know whether it was in another country or not. But anyway, he was traveling with his wife, or maybe they were there in their hometown, I don't know. But the way he tells it is, he was traveling with his wife, and it was her birthday, and they went and, and to a nice restaurant and had a nice meal. And they were sitting there and just really enjoying this, and it was a table set up for four, and there were just the two of them there, and they were talking. And a young man getting walking out of the restaurant caught his eye, or, or they, they locked eyes, and then the 
young man turned and came to the table and said, are you Louis Giglio? I said, well, yes, I am. And he said, you spoke at a conference that I attended a few weeks ago, and, and that just really spoke to me, um, the, the message you shared. And I feel like uh, I feel like I'm supposed to talk with you and, and share some of my story with you. And Louis said, well, he, he felt like he just had the easiest out in the world. He said, well, you know, it's really nice to meet you, and I'm glad that God was able to speak to you, but tonight is my wife's birthday. This is her birthday supper. He said, oh, well, happy birthday. And then he just made himself at home at the table and started talking. And he said he's about 10 minutes into telling his story, and and he Louis can't process any of it because they're thinking, is this really happening? How am I going to get this fellow to go away? How can I continue this meal with my wife? And finally, the the fellow stops talking for a little bit, and Louis says, "I'm sorry, I, I haven't I haven't followed any of that. This is my wife's birthday supper, and 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 he says, "Well, do you mean you want me to leave?" I said, "Well, yeah." And so he gave him his email address and said, you know, I, I would love to talk to you, but I, I, I can't process this right now, and so you'll, you'll just have to reach out to me and we'll connect later. And he said it shocked him how quickly it went from somebody he didn't know at all to somebody who was sitting at his table and just taking all his time and attention. He said it was amazing how fast a person they didn't even know was at the table and making himself at home there. How fast can the devil get at your table? How casually and smoothly can the enemy of all enemies slide up to that table that God laid out for you and him? to connect and commune. Just like he belongs there. Just shows up and makes himself at home. And where the questions the enemy might ask, they might even be the same as some of the ones God is asking when you sit down and dine with him. The roots go to a very different place. When he asks, what's going on? How are you doing? How's that relationship thing working out? Whereas God asking you that question when you sit down with him, God might be asking, have you thought about how they're feeling in this relationship struggle? The enemy would say, well, I don't know how you do it. Things they're saying behind your back, you're just a pretty special person to let that go. Question sounds the same at first, but the roots go very different places. The enemy will be wearing you down. Well, that person's crazy. You're hanging in there. They're a way to go. Well, how's everything at home? But your dad's a real tyrant, huh? Or... Your spouse has really been annoying these last couple of days. What is up with that? Your sister, she's been a real jerk to you. You're a saint to put up with all her nonsense, huh? 
Those are the kind of things that the enemy will speak to you if you let him at your table. And within a few seconds, he's, he's at your table and he's building up a relationship of his own. And the purpose underneath it all is destruction. Your shepherd prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemies, and before you knew it, the enemy was at your table. And how do you know if you've given the enemy a seat at the table? And there are a few things to consider here. If you heard recently that it is better at another table than it is at this table with your shepherd, then the enemy's at your table. John 10.10 says the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that you may have life, that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. Sitting at the table with your God, with your shepherd, is about life abundantly, life to the full. Any other table is about tearing down to kill and destroy. And the devil doesn't show up. The enemy doesn't show up to your table dressed in a Halloween devil costume with red horns and a pitchfork. He doesn't show up at the table and pick up the cheese knife and threaten you with it. There was a quote from the book I put in my notes. The devil comes to your table looking like what you're looking for, sounding like what you're listening for, telling you what you want to hear. He's not coming to the table telling you he's trying to kill you. He's not going to come and threaten you. He's going to come and try to seduce you. So how do you know if the devil, if you've given him a place at your table, if you're hearing about why you need to abandon what you know about the truth, that's not from God. If you're hearing about why you're justified in your bitterness toward that person, that's not from God. If you're hearing why you're the one who is right in that disagreement, it doesn't sound like God talking. If you're hearing that your way is obviously superior and, and everyone who agreed to do the other thing is just an idiot, that's the devil speaking. If you're hearing that it's fine to just do your own thing for a season because that's what you want and what you've dreamed about and you deserve it, that's the wrong voice at your table. You have someone at your table that shouldn't be speaking into your life. The enemy is smoothly talking to drown out the voice of the shepherd. If you're hearing... I'm not good enough to sit at God's table. You've got the enemy sitting at your table. I don't come, I, I don't base my standing before God on my spiritual performance. I don't come to God in my name. A few weeks ago, I think it was a few weeks ago here, we read a couple verses from John 17. Jesus talking about his relationship with the Father and our relationship with the Father through him. John 17, 22 and 23, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, you're the them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in love, may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them 
as I, as you have loved me. We come to God and surrender to the leadership of our shepherd, Jesus, and in sonship to God. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So does that mean the reservation for this table cost Jesus his life? If you're hearing, you're not good enough, you're not attractive enough, you're not smart enough, the enemy is doing the talking. Because God has not called you to be good enough, attractive enough, smart enough. God has called you to love him with all you've got, heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love the people around you like yourself. If a voice has told you, you're not going to make it. The enemy's at your table. We sometimes think, we sometimes even say, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I can survive this. I don't know if I'm going to get through this. I don't know if I'm ever going to recover. The shepherd said, we're going through the valley. We We sing, take the world, but give me Jesus. If we really mean that, getting through this looks a whole lot different. One last thing that can tell you the enemy is at your table is if you hear a voice saying, everyone's against you. Everyone hates you. Everyone in my family hates me. Everyone at work is against me. This idea that you are the oppressed and disliked one is not a message from God. It's possible that somebody dislikes you. Statistically probable in a fallen world. It's possible someone even hates you in this fallen world. Even in a human sense, though, it is not likely that everyone is against you. And yet that is a lie that gets whispered to us across that table, and we hold on to. And if you have that mindset that everyone is against you, you'll put your shields up. You'll you'll stick out some thorns or prickles so that people know that to squeeze you will be a little unpleasant for them. And next thing you know, you, you start adding to the number of people who maybe are a little bit against you. Give the enemy a seat at your table and... He'll take you from turn the other cheek to I'll hit you back just as hard as you hit me to I'll hit you back twice as hard as you hit me to I'll hit you back first. The devil will take you all the way from turn the other cheek to preemptive strike if you give him a place at your table. But if you kick the enemy out, you remove his chair, you'll hear your shepherd saying that He's for you and asking you, will you be for me? So that book that that made me dig a little deeper into Psalm 23 was don't give the enemy a seat at your table. And that is a statement I, I want you to take with you. But I titled my message this morning simply, A Seat at the Table. Because in addition to evicting the enemy and not giving him a voice in my life, and especially in my thoughts, I want us to 
marvel at the amazing truth of God setting a table for us. The almighty God of the universe saying, come, have a seat. And then he himself sitting down. Revelation 3.20 is just an amazing verse to me. Nobody really... likes to share a meal with someone that they don't get along with. There is something intimate about sitting down and, to wax poetical, breaking bread together. There is just something about getting together and sharing a meal that is, well, there's something to it. Revelation 3.20 is a verse that in some ways I just can't wrap my head around. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The God of the universe sitting down to supper together with him, him with me, me with him, is just a, a concept that Stretches my brain. God spreading out that feast. When we think of Psalm 23 and, and pouring that glass of cool water and saying, I'm so glad you made it. How are you doing? That's the invitation we have to come into intimate, close relationship with God. But we have to say yes. Yes. And just sending a yes on the little RSVP card in the invitation isn't what he's looking for. He gets the card back, say, yes, I'm coming, and you never show up. How's that going to feel? We have to show up, and we have to sit down. And in our busyness, we are prone to maybe show up and maybe, maybe even a little late and, and say, wow, look at this spread. I wish I'd come sooner. But do you have any doggy bags? Do you, are there any to-go boxes? Because I, I really need to get to my next meeting. But I could maybe at least take a, you know, a cookie or some of that fruit or whatever so, so I can enjoy it on the drive home. Or maybe you're the millennial who takes out your phone and takes a picture of the amazing meal laid out and you post a picture with the caption, at lunch with the king. And while this just looks amazing and thank you so much for this, it's incredible, but I really do have to run. Is that how we treat our opportunity to sit down at the table with our king? Is that your life? Is that my life? A few weeks ago, my wife reminded me about the time when we were dating that we went out to eat and the table next to us had three groups of people come, eat, and leave while we were there at our table. Am I the one who tries to show up to God's table 
and fill up a styrofoam container to take with me so I have a little something to keep me going? Or am I the one who sits there and barely notices that person after person comes and eats and leaves at the next table over? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. God has prepared a table for you. Will you take a seat at the table? God bless you. Thank you for your time. Can we have a song, please?